Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. So, where do you see yourself in five years' time? What do you want to be doing? What's the plan? I just want to be happy. I want to learn everything. I'll be stinking rich. He's going to London. 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 I'm getting out of here. The history of men like us have always been hidden away in secret. But then there's the real world. There's a million pubs and things. I love it, you. I came to London and I thought, great, I can be gay. We're going to party every night. Hello and welcome to Still Watching. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair chief critic Richard Lawson. Right now, Richard and I, uh, along with our colleague Anthony Bresdekin, are in the middle of a deep dive of WandaVision, but we are pressing pause on WandaVision uh, really quickly. Richard and I are doing this one-off special episode to talk about the um, HBO miniseries, um, I suppose it's probably a BBC miniseries, on HBO called It's a Sin from Russell Davies. This is a five-part uh, show that dropped in the UK um, a little earlier this year and is dropping all at once on HBO Max uh, for your binging uh, pleasure this weekend. Um, Richard, do you want to tell the folks, give a, give a tidy little summary of what It's a Sin is? Yeah, it's like you said, it's from Russell T. Davies, who is the creator of Queer as Folk, um, which was a, a, a groundbreaking show in its time in the late 90s who then went on to kind of spearhead the revamp of Doctor Who and has done um, some other interesting TV projects um, and now is kind of returning specifically to gay homosocial culture, I guess. Um, and this this series is set um, in 1980, the early 1980s in London, and it follows uh, so young, some young people, mostly gay men, um, as they, you know, start on their lives uh, in the big city and pursue career dreams and love and all sex and all that stuff. But of course, uh, during that time was when the AIDS crisis was running uh, really, really ramping up uh, in the gay community. So it's a, um, it's a piece of history, uh, gay history, I guess, um, epidemiological history, um, but also a kind of interpersonal drama 
it's a lot of things kind of like life. And I guess this show is really just about people's lives. Uh, and from what I gathered, and we've got uh, an interview, uh, Richard talked to Rusty Davies and Ollie Alexander, who's the lead actor in the series. Um, and you'll hear that a little bit later in this episode. Richard and I are going to talk a little bit sort of generally about the show. Then you'll hear the interview. And then at the, after the interview, we're going to talk about some specifics of the ending, which, um, you know, Richard has a lot of thoughts on. I do too. Um, so if you haven't seen the show yet, I think this first first section is going to be safe for you to listen to. Um, and then you're going to want to go watch it, listen to the interview and listen to the ending, or you can press pause, watch it, listen to the whole thing then. Um, but we're not going to get into like really specific sort of episodic spoilers until the end of this podcast. Um, but yeah, this is, this is from what I understand, a semi autobiographical, um, reflection of Russell's own experience, sort of being young and, um, artistic, uh, at the dawn of this crisis in, in London. So, um, and newly out, I think that's another and, big facet of, of this show is that it, it is at least in the, the first episode or two, a very much a coming out story. So I want to kick off with this email we got from one of our listeners, Robert, because we did mention that we were going to be doing this one-off episode. Um, and Robert writes to us from the UK, writes, uh, firstly, thank you so much for all the hard work and craft you both put into still watching and other projects. Um, whichever series you're working through is always the highlight of my week once you've explained it all to me in the podcast. Thank you, Robert. That's so nice. I wanted to write ahead of your It's a Sin podcast. The program was a very personal and intense watch for me as an HIV plus cis gay man living in Bristol in the UK. I'm lucky that I was diagnosed in 2010 at the age of 22 and so uh, I'm completely fit and healthy on antiviral medication. Watching is a sin has really struck a nerve for the LGBT community in the UK as there has been very little in the way of UK-based drama addressing the AIDS HIV epidemic. A lot of the history I knew through my own experience and research, but a lot of queer people my age have little to no knowledge of everything that went down in that era. The survivors of this era are the heroes of our community, the gay bar owners, charity founders, mentors, and activists who campaigned for all the rights we now have in modern times. Highlighting uh, to the current privileged generation everything that happened, I think, is enormously important. Amazing, amazing, uh, amazingly, the program has also broken records on uh, 4OD, that's Channel 4 streaming service, and many heterosexual people in the country are finally becoming aware of the horrors of that era for the LGBTQ community. For me, the highlight of the show were the scenes, uh, well, that's a finale spoiler, so I'm going to skip that. Um, the two criticisms I would have the show are a, it is very much Russell's viewpoint on the era. The main characters are all cis gay men with no lesbians, only to token trans representation and little acknowledgement of the impact the virus had on heterosexual people or in particular British people who have immigrated from Africa. Also I found it deeply frustrating. Um, the ending, which we will talk about. Um, sorry for the long email. Thank you all for you do. Um, and I owe you a huge debt of gratitude, Rob. So it sounds like, you know, um, I think Richard and I were both, well, I don't want to speak for you, Richard. I will say I was extremely positive on the show. Um, and then have some questions about the ending. Yeah. Richard, overall, what's you, how would you characterize your feeling? Yeah. I mean, I think it, 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 it's a show, I mean, kind of like life that contains some really beautiful moments, um, some really sad ones, and then some ones that are a bit frustrating, um, mm -hmm. particularly toward the end of the series. Um, and I think that the emailer makes an important point, which is that Davies, and he'll talk about this in our interview, but like this is based on his own experience. And so the purview 
does have to be a little bit narrower if he wants to be specific, I guess you could say. Um, which isn't to say that that's enough, I guess. I mean, I think if, if the show as it's being kind of marketed at least is as this kind of broad survey of AIDS in the early eighties in the UK, um, a lot of people are left out and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and that has been the case for so much, uh, fiction, uh, be it plays or books or films or miniseries about AIDS, um, you know, gay white men have been the authors of a vast majority of those uh, uh, works, at least the ones that have gotten, you know, sort of prominent attention or productions. So this is not breaking the mold in that way. Um, But I think that what it does, which is also something your emailer addressed is, you know, 1981 was almost 40, it was 40 years ago. (laughs) And uh, that's, that's two roughly generations of people, you know, yeah. And I think especially nowadays with, um, well, I mean, to be <laughs> blunt, I guess, like um, a lot of condom-free pornography, uh, gay pornography, um, the advent of drugs like PrEP um, uh, have really taken the sort of safe sex conversation within the gay community to a different place. I'm not saying that people aren't cognizant of or careful, but um, HIV and AIDS specifically are not... Uh, I guess held in the same, at least from my perspective, held in the same sort of like central p- place of importance um, in in gay culture, which is a good thing. And I think that Davies would agree with that. And that's why he made Queer as Folk in 1998 because he wanted, to, and which never mentions HIV at all. Um, oh, it, I never realized that. Yeah, this and he talks about that in our interview. But like mm-hmm. the, this community does not need to be defined as as amorphous a community as it is to begin with. Does not need to be defined by a disease. But I think something not only sort of in terms of tradition and history and lore is lost if um, AIDS is kind of um, fades in, in, in cultural memory, but actually there is a public health uh, mm. or personal health concern to that as well. Um, yeah. So it's a really tricky thing to do. This is obviously a really fraught topic for lots of people of varying ages and experiences. Um, but I think for the most part, at least, especially in those early episodes, I think this show um, gets at something really true and important. The thing that, um, you know, you and I talked about off air liking so much, um, and I think the thing that a lot of people have exclaimed about uh, the series is the way in which it balances the very real, the feelings you would expect to feel from um, a a drama centered on the um, AIDS HIV crisis with joy and celebration for what this time was like. Uh, for the gay community on, on the positive side, um, in, in the UK, uh, specifically, just sort of like, you know, the dancing, the club scene, the like, you know, just, just at a tipping point in culture, you know, I, I actually, I shouldn't talk, speak to this because I'm not a scholar of when sort of coming out of the closet, um, or when the closet opened up in the UK, but it feels that there is a liberation feeling um, to the beginning, especially of this series of like to be gay and in London was something that uh, you could be and not, not, not like that it was without um, its societal like dangers or whatever, but it was just, we were on this on the verge of something or pushing the boundary of something. Um, Was that your sense as well, Richard? Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
So there was a thing in the UK uh, or in, in Wales and England called the Sexual Offenses Act of 1967, which legalized um, gay sex, essentially. But everyone, ha- it had to be consensual, of course, but also, uh, and in private, but also they had to be, tw- the, the people engaged both had to be over 21 or over. Right, right. Which uh, caused some really, uh, some real complications culturally. And um, that law eventually went away. Sorry, I don't have the actual dates in front of me, but but the 67 law with it, even though it had its limits, was still pretty profound. Um, you know, it was two years before Stonewall. And then this is 12 years later, you know, 12 years after Stonewall. So there was a sense, you know, there's a great documentary called Gay Sex in the 70s, which is mostly about New York, but it's about that kind of era and, 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 you know, concomitant with disco and, 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 and that kind of liberation, the sexual liberation, all this stuff, um, women's lib stuff, you know, was obviously a a component of that. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, it's a, it's, and, and I think that's what's so arresting about the beginning of this series is, is that you had these kids are like just tearing into their new lives. Like they're just, you know, in different ways, but they're so Mm -hmm. excited and, and then to have this thing kind of stop them in their tracks, um, so abruptly and horribly, um, you know, that is lived reality for a lot of people still alive and, and a lot of people who aren't. It's so it's, um, I don't know. Interesting is the wrong word, but you know, I, so I grew up in the, in the eighties and nineties and, um, in the San Francisco Bay area, I did a lot of, um, you know, throughout my teenage years, I did a lot of, um, work that, that, um, involved delivering meals to HIV AIDS, uh, patients. I like, so I sat with them a lot. I heard a lot of their stories. I growing up around here, you know, there was a lot of culture, a lot of, um, film and television that, that felt like it, it covered the HIV AIDS crisis. And it just never occurred to me until we got that email from someone, uh, from Robert that, all of that was such a profoundly American point of view that I, that I did not grow up with a lot of global awareness of AIDS, that it was just very narrowly American. Um, you know, did you have a broader experience in that Richard, or does this feel like, um, you know, pushing something open for you? Yeah. I mean, it, it does. I mean, I, 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 you know, so much of, AIDS narratives in the U S are about New York city and San Francisco. And, um, you know, in my own experience, my, my, my mother's brother, my uncle, uh, Bob, he, he died of AIDS in 1985, uh, as did his partner and many of their friends. And, you know, he lived, had a house on fire Island in, in, in New York and, and, and at home in Manhattan. And, you know, and so for, in my mind, you know, and then sort of aided by a lot of plays that were written in the eighties and nineties, uh, angels in America being the most famous example, it all seemed like to be a very American story. And it was a very, very bad, uh, uh, pandemic in, in America. Um, and it wasn't until, uh, somewhat recently, a few years ago, there was a movie called beats per minute, uh, BPM, a mm-hmm. French movie by a director named Robin Campillo that everyone should seek out. It's a really wonderful companion piece to this show. Uh, about AIDS activists in Paris in the early nineties. So it's about a decade um, later. Um, and that really opened my eyes. I mean, we are still talking about cis men and mostly white men. And, and, and so there is still, there are still absolute limits uh, to say nothing of the AIDS epidemic in, in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and, but, but anyway, BPM, I was just like, Oh, right. Like this was happening around the world. 
And and I think it's really, you know, even though the UK is not that far removed culturally, geographically from the United States, it is still, I think, important for American audiences um, to to see that, like, that there 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 were different iterations of this same horror uh, happening elsewhere. Yeah, and different different governmental responses. Yeah. Like, there's plenty yeah. that we can recognize in you know the American government's failures and the British government's failures, but they're different flavors, and and it's very educational, um, you know, to say the least, to watch it as in to see sort of what uniquely they were dealing with here. Um, yeah, and and that also that idea of generational education. Did you wind up um, seeing? The Inheritance, the Matthew Lopez two-part play? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm pro- we've probably talked about it before, you and I, but like um, one of the um, one of the big themes of that play is about generational education within the gay community, about sort of this idea of the the young men now not not really fully being able to grok sort of what happened to the men who came for and once again it's very very men male focus mm-hmm. very mm-hmm. white male focus but like not being able to grapple what happened with what happened to that generation and 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 that is the like sort of titular inheritance is that like i mean i don't want to see i don't want to say inherited trauma because it's not just trauma it's also just sort of that joy and celebration for who these men were and and you know, honoring what was lost as well as the loss, if that makes sense. Um, and, you know, it sounds like that's somewhat of the mission behind this series as well is, is a bit of a generational education. Is that, a, do you feel like that's yeah, accurate? Absolutely. And I think, I think that, that generational education um, you see in the, the recent uh, Netflix uh, reboot, not reboot, but continuation of Tales of the City, the Armistead mm-hmm. Mopin. Uh, well, it was short, short stories and then I think it was short stories and then, uh, a, a series, you know, ages ago with young Laura Linney. It was a co- oh, column and then a series column, of novels. That's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah novels. Yeah. yeah. Um, where the, you know, and that actually is a, is, is more inclusive in terms of racially and, and, and in terms of the gender spectrum and, mm-hmm. um, but there is a, there are some really one vital scene in particular where there is this dinner party clash between uh, an older generation of gay men who had lived through AIDS and a younger one, and 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 they both make some points. I think ultimately you're kind of supposed to see the younger person's perspective a little bit more clear because they're saying you know they're being more intersectional about you know what gay rights means and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. But but I think that you know. RuPaul says, as gay people, we get to choose our families and, 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 and gay community is, is found. It, it is, it's not, it's not, um, instilled in you from birth. It's not biological family or, or adopted family. It, it is a kind of oftentimes something that you kind of build as a, as a grown up, um, or a young adult. And in order to build that community the most healthily, there has to be an understanding, uh, generationally. And so much about gay life is, um, passed down, you know, mm-hmm. whether that's, you know, sound advice about where to not w- w- walk if you don't want a certain experience in Provincetown or, or something deeper and, and, and more serious. And I think that there's a great scene in the first episode of it's a sin, mm-hmm. uh, where, um, oh, what's his name? Colin, right. Um, mm-hmm. our, our little Welsh friend, um, mm-hmm. 
uh, a coworker catches him sort of being harassed by the the, the guy who runs this tailor shop on on Savile Row, mm-hmm. uh, and this guy, the 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 older coworker is played by Neil Patrick Harris, and he and he takes him for a beer at a pub and basically just pretty much comes out and just says, "So you're gay? Would you like a boyfriend?" You know all this kind of stuff, um, welcoming him into the yeah. the quote unquote family and that scene is just so powerful because so many gay people queer people have had that experience themselves and in order i think to fully have that experience now not post aids by any means but now with the knowledge of aids um that 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 ne- it needs to be it needs to be known and it doesn't have to define anything but um it's certainly a component of it so you should talk about the found family at the center of this um of this show. Uh, the, the lead is, uh, Rishi Tozier played by Ollie Alexander. I know Ollie from, um, God help the girl, the Bell and Sebastian musical he did a couple years ago, but this is like a, this is just a huge performance from and for him, you know, a huge role for him. And he just eats it up. It's incredible. Um, Roscoe Babatunde played by Omari Douglas, uh, Colin Morris Jones, the affirmation Welshman played by Callum Scott Howells, Jill Baxter played by Lydia West and Ash Mukherjee played by Nathaniel Curtis. Um, those like the core five, um, set of roommates, um, the, the found family. And, um, you know, there are other, other ancillary parts of that, but that's like, that's the core. And, and, you know, to, is this a sort of, uh, a white cis lens, yes, but this is a you know fairly diverse core five um, of of the cast, we should say, um, at least you know racially, and 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 the character of Jill, who's based on uh, Russell T Davies' uh, very real roommate, very good friend Jill Nalder, I think is how you pronounce her last name, uh, who who wound up playing the fictional Jill's mother in the series. Um, this character of Jill, I would consider the, the co-lead of, of, yep. the, of the show. Um, and her story, I mean, I think Lydia West is incredible and her story of, um, I was remind, I hope, hopefully this is not cringy and cheesy. Um, probably is, but I, I, I was just constantly reminded of, um, that line from rent, where Mark says, because perhaps because I'm the one of us to survive, um, yeah. you know, poor baby. I know that that's, um, it's, it's cringy to quote rent in 2021. I've seen rent nine times to rent. Okay. <laughs> but you know, this Not idea the movie, of, by um, the way, the stage show I've seen nine times. <laughs> the, the, uh, the survivors, the caretakers, the, you know, um, and that's, that's the Jill role. And it's given a lot of weight in the, sh- in the show. And I, I just thought that that part of it was really compelling as well. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and she's so good, uh, Lydia West. And um, obviously a huge component of gay life then, gay life now, not just as, you know, the stereotypical beards or fag hags or whatever, but like, but like as true participants and allies and, 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 and in this case, carers, you know, um, and advocates, um, I, I think, you know, we can get more into the kind of critical stuff later, but like, I do think I wish that Jill was a little more fleshed out as an individual, um, rather than kind of standing in as this, I know she's based on a real person, but to me, she sometimes stands in a bit broadly as like a figure of more people, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. but, but yeah, it's so crucial that she's in there, um, because you really don't see a ton of those characters in, in, in a, in a lot of gay narratives, uh, born out of the eighties and nineties, 
Um, there are certainly women in them, but it, you know, it's a brittle mother like Nick in Nikki Silver's play in pterodactyls, or it's a pill addled woman like uh, Harper in angels in America, you know, um, not necessarily the people who, the women who lesbians, straight women, all manner of women who were, uh, right there, you know, uh, alongside these people. Yeah. I had a, a friend of mine was, was watching the first couple episodes. Um, I think it was yesterday and he was talking to me about, um, how, how kind of surprised he was by the, like the, the joy and the humanity and how, and how, how quickly it introduces that, that tone, you know, like we were uh, a little, uh, behind the scenes, uh, Richard and I were sort of uh, alerted by a, a very lovely HBO publicist that we might want to take a look at this. And, um, uh, I don't know about you, Richard, but I like, I dragged my feet a little because I was like, I don't know that. I'm like really excited to queue up a, a show about the HIV AIDS crisis. Like that sounds in a pandemic year, like that sounds a little bit tough to me. Um, and yeah. then, you know, I'll admit that it wasn't until I started hearing sort of raves about it from, uh, from the UK audience that I, you know, fired up the screeners that had been sitting there waiting for me. And the, the tone right from the start is such an interesting blend of that, of that joy and hope with the other darker parts of of the narrative but um my friend was texting me as he was watching it. he was like even so simple as them all coming into the kitchen with the la which is this like little way that they greet each other as a as like a found family and it's mm -hmm. never it's never explained or dug into it just is and it's just a very simple beautiful aspect of it and it's something russell t davies has always been so good at like his doctor who era is my favorite doctor who era and that show when it's done well is also about found family his queers folk um once again is just was just like a depiction um both both the uk version and the american uh you know remake were this depiction of of gay life you know in a through a lens that you know through that joy lens which which it just hadn't been because it had been so much of the like quote-unquote gay plague narrative um and and it's like you know what what if we show you something else right yeah yeah absolutely i th I think that all of the the fun that they have you know mm -hmm. even while people are sick and dying mm -hmm. you know and that's not it's not callousness it's just like i mean what if you know what have we been it's not this it's not comparable but like exactly but like what have we been doing for the past year? You know, we've been worried and trying to help where we can. I mean, much more so for people who are actually, you know, out in the field working to, to help people during COVID. But, um, there's also, you know, podcasts and, mm -hmm. uh, zoom parties and, you know, whatnot, like life does carry on. Hamilton I, I, on Disney plus. Hamilton on know? Disney plus. I, I had a therapist, um, for many years who, uh, was, you know, a gay man actually who had lived through AIDS. And, um, but, you know, when I would feel sort of despair about the world, be it Trump or, you know, any manner of things, uh, that were out of my control, um, he would always say, uh, you know, during the siege of Leningrad in World War II, which was a horrible, <laughs> horrible time for those uh -huh. people, he was like, people still took piano lessons, <laughs> you know, uh -huh. and, and, and I love that. And I think that we see people, 
taking the metaphorical piano lessons in this show, which um, yeah. I think is really uh, a nice way not to not necessarily it doesn't have to exist as a counterbalance to the tragedy because they're so interlinked but yes. just like it's like it's just it that's more the fullness of of life like and and i think that this show gets that really well and and you know that's helped immensely by these actors who are all great all right is there anything else you want to say before we get to your conversation with russell and ollie no let's let's uh let's hear it from from the source all right let's do it the Run for Revogue is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowitz. Um, we should be the mayor of New York. We all support yeah, that. we support that. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Nikki. Yes. It's been really great she being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asher, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K, and a winter okay. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mal. And we're the hosts of The Run Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's AWOK. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Well, I'm so pleased and frankly honored uh, now to be on the line with the creator of It's a Sin, Russell T. Davies, and the star, one of the stars of Ali- Alexander. Thank you both so much for uh, talking with us. Hi. Thank, thank you for having you. me. Hi. <laughs> it's it's such a, a dense and uh, immersive piece. I think it'll be hard to really get into a ton of detail in a in just a short conversation, but as kind of an overview, Russell, I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit about the origin of the show, um, you know, yeah. how it arrived to you at this moment in your career, at this moment in time, um, because, you know, you've done sort of, you've done shows in the queer world before, obviously, but this is a kind of different story within that realm. So I'm just sure. curious like, how this struck you. Sure, yes. I'm very worried by any podcast that begins by describing it as dense. Be kind. <laughs> it's a lot better than dense. That's a terrible word. Anyway, but yes, it's the story <laughs> of... <laughs> Thank you. It's a story of five people who leave home. It's, and it's 1981. A bunch of five 18-year-olds leave home like you do to go to university or to get a job. They end up living in a flat together in London at the beginning of the 80s. And they share a flat. Four of the boys are gay and one girl. And it's the decade in which you come out, you come of age. The music's brilliant. You fall in love, you fall out of love. Uh, you're not just coming of age. They are coming out as well. But of course, 
starting in 1981, it's that decade where at the edge of the horizon, like a cloud on the distance, we're getting closer and closer and closer. There's a word, there's a virus. It becomes HIV, which becomes AIDS, which creeps into their lives. It starts surrounding them until it gets right into the heart of their lives. And it's, it's five episodes set over... Set over 10 years, it covers the whole decade. It goes from 1981 to 1990. So you really live with these people. You really feel their lives and their losses. And um, I wanted to create a gang of mates who who you miss afterwards, because I think that's my fundamental experience of the AIDS crisis, is losing people I loved and missing them. So I wanted to do that. I wanted to actually create people you love and miss. And you're right, it's taken me a long time to turn around like a great big ocean tanker and, and and face this thing. I've been writing gay stuff for a million years. I mean, it's 22 years since I invented Queer as Folk, uh, which kind of went around the world. And Queer as Folk in itself, the, the original British Queer as Folk, is a very, um, it's very much a response to age and that it doesn't mention it at all because it was 1998 and I was absolutely determined that gay life would not be defined by a disease, by a virus, as it was in every straight drama and every straight fiction and every piece of journalism and every appearance in the media. So that was a massive, bold reaction to it that I stand by to this day. I was absolutely right to do it. But, you know, maybe maybe it, I, it's hard to analyse yourself, isn't it? Because um, maybe it took me this long to turn around to look at it. Maybe, you know, your life gets interrupted. I, I suddenly ended up doing Doctor Who and that took away 10 years of my life. We'd be having this conversation 10 years earlier if it wasn't for that. But nonetheless, I'm kind of... In, in many ways, the, the AIDS crisis, which in some ways is ongoing, it's, it's almost wrong to talk about it in the past tense, but, but for the sake of this argument, the AIDS crisis is the biggest thing to happen as a gay man in my lifetime. And so maybe I'm glad I waited this one. Maybe now I've, got, I've written a lot. Maybe I've got the skills, I hope. I've got the tricks. I've got the insight or some insight into writing about it at last. And I'm, I'm glad that I have because, I mean, we're, we're, we're having this conversation just nine, ten days after its launch in Britain, and it's huge. We thought, I, even I, I love the show, and I kind of thought, well, it's a drama about AIDS. We're going to be tucked away in a corner and given a nice ribbon and dusted off at gay retrospectives for the next 20 years, but um, and a polite applause. Well done, well done. And it's turned into this, it's actually turned into a phenomenon. It's, it's taken us, we're breathless and amazed by so many people watching it, record viewing figures, and not just that, never mind the viewing figures, it's the conversations and the the memories it's woken up, the memories of those people we've lost, everything I was talking about that I was hoping for, remembering people we missed, much to my surprise, you plan these things, they never happen. It's actually happened on this. And it's a very strange and humbling and beautiful week for us all. Yeah, I mean, I'm so pleased to hear that it's been received so well. Um, Because like you said, you know, maybe just 10 years ago or something, it wouldn't have gotten the same kind of reception. It does feel like that's something has shifted uh, or progressed even um you know queer as folk was a big show when i was in, in high school in america um okay. there were maybe two other out gay boys in my class and someone had taped british queer as folk off of the tv and the videos were passed around like sort of secret <laughs> contraband um <laughs> you owe me. i think you owe me money you owe me money. i probably do I'll, I'll, I'll venmo you <laughs> i'll venmo you um Ollie, what was your knowledge? Did you know Russell's work pr- previous to working on this? Did, did you have a relationship with Queerous Folk or Doctor uh, Who or anything? Well, both. But this is really making me think of my Queerous Folk introduction was um, 40. And I was 14 years old. I was at a friend's house. And my friend Kaz, 
really loved the series and she forced us all to watch it with her actually because me and my my other best mate who's gay too but at that time we were still in the closet you know we didn't really we didn't know ourselves we, we kind of knew but and uh we didn't really even want to watch it sorry sorry Russell because <laughs> okay. we, we were so scandalized and then um and then it was a little bit similar to what what, what you were saying which are like it was a uh, you know kind of a naughty it was it was it was a sort of secret that we 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 had from our with each other you know and we didn't even discuss it but and I um yeah so I, I honestly meeting Russell all those years all these years later was um it was really a moment it was it was a moment for me Russell oh mate <laughs> <laughs> thank you I, I think that something at least in my life that has been so valuable about you know, being a gay man and finding gay community has been a sort of generational exchange, you know, uh, older gay men who have lived through a certain experience that they can help me with or know a piece of history that I'm not as familiar with. I think that's a huge part of of the kind of, you know, the sort of chosen family aspect of queer life. And I'm curious, Russell, do you see any of that sort of conference of information like between generations as part of the mission of, of this show i do i've got to say it also it honestly happens the other way around i talk to ollie and all the other boys in the class and other p- young people i meet the the baristas in the, in the coffee shop down the road and mm. they're so full of life you know to them their issues are like gender issues trans issues all the new issues same fights same battles same language but different battlegrounds and i learned so much i'm so i mean i'm so in awe a friend of mine uh, sent me a text that ex Doctor Who companion and she sent me a text that said, mm-hmm. uh, My gay teenage son sat down with his gay boyfriend. And all those words made my head spin. All of them. That's just mad that you can have a gay teenage son with a gay boyfriend. When you're 57 years old, that's impossible and beautiful and brilliant. And she said they watched it and they watched It's a Sin. And she said they're furious. They're absolutely furious. They did not know that these things could happen mm. because you're talking about mentorship between generations. And of course, what we're talking about is something that's not on any educational syllabus anywhere. Yeah. It's just not included. It's not talked about. So, so I hope we do have each other. And, it, and I'm not just, it really does work both ways. You learn. I think any te- I'm from a family of teachers and my mum and my dad and my two sisters are teachers and they will tell you, you learn off the young. Did you what What did you learn from it, Ollie? From from this uh, really, um, uh, you know, kind of big experience of of making this this show. Oh my gosh! Well, I guess um, the whole area of HIV and AIDS was something I was really afraid of for a long time, and um, I didn't even understand quite why. I just linked it with my sexuality that I was kind of coming to terms with, and so. Over the years, I've kind of been, uh, you know, learning more and more about, you know, the 1980s, what happened in part, what, what, what is queer history, what, what happened and how does that, how has it impacted me? And, you know, like, of course, it's um, the legacy of the AIDS crisis is, is, is in, it just goes on and on and on. And it, the impact is so huge and it affects us all in different ways. And I think I'm always kind of learning more about that. But coming to do the the show and we make it's a sin it was such kind of a very intimate way to engage with it i guess and um you know i can't help but be incredibly moved by not only the characters in the story and the show but you know just everything you know learning about that period and i i remember just before we started shooting i read um 
at your own risk by Derek Jarman, which is, and I actually just found it today going to my books and I just remembered what a fantastic book this is. And I, you know, I have, I think, you know, when you mentioned intergenerational um, kind of relationships, I've really had to kind of strive to find my own and um, over the years, but they've given me so much um, courage and, 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 you know, Derek Jarman, I never knew him, but he's one of mine, you know, <laughs> and um, it's, uh, yeah. And um I don't know. I just think, wow, I'm so honoured to be kind of, well, I suppose a part of this uh, community, really. But to 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 be a part in telling a story like it's a sin, I think it's so important for people to because, and like Russell says, so many people just didn't had no idea. You know, lots of this happened in silence. It's it's yeah. Uh, the people who are listening to this have already watched the show, so I won't be. We're, we're, we can head into spoiler territory, which I'm about <laughs> <Yeah>. to do. <laughs> um, there is this gorgeous moment. I, I think it's in the last episode um, where Richie is dying, and I believe he's speaking to Jill, and he talks about how much fun it was. Speak, you know, and he speaks to his mother. Oh, it's his mother. That's right. Sorry. Forgive me. Um, I I was watching through like a veil of tears, so I (laughs) probably didn't. But but it's such a crucial moment in the series because I think so much stuff, understandably, about the AIDS crisis in America, in the UK, in France, everywhere around the world has been tragic and laden with that sort of sorrow. And this show is too, but there's also that celebration of the joy and the sex and the communion of people. I'm curious, Russell, how did you approach that balance b- between talking about the sad stuff, showing the sad stuff, but also showing the the pleasure of it, the fun of it? Yeah, that's and that balance is exactly what I set out to write. The, the, that's one of the final speeches. That last episode is kind of full of stuff that I've always wanted to write. You know, I've probably built up for decades to writing this. And, and also watching on all the other great pieces of work and even the minor pieces of work, there's a lot of AIDS dramas, a lot of AIDS fiction out there as a gay man. I'm just drawn to it like a moth to a flame. It's Even if it's a subplot, I've probably seen it all and loved it. You know, such brilliant pieces of work out there. And uh, but that also allowed me the freedom to sort of say, what's not being said? What's my experience that hasn't, or my insight into this? I'm, you know, that's what I'm here to do is to have insight. What's missing, uh, you know, in order to complete the tapestry, which will never be completed, but um, to contribute my stitches to it. But, um, and I thought that, 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 that celebration of the lives that were, the deaths could be so terrible. It's a cruel illness. It's cruel. It takes so many shapes and forms. And if you add to the fact that it was covered in shame and stigma and silence, what a, a terrible way to end. And that, I think, sort of set the tone of the deaths and set the tone of the memories of the people we've lost. They remembered in silence. And, um, and I wanted to shine light on that. I wanted to open a lid and open the door and sort of say, look, this, these boys that we lost, these men of all ages, um, they had wonderful lives. It, it doesn't matter whether they were chorus boys or whether they went to discos or whether they stayed at home and read a book, even if they just were had a nice pizza on a Friday night with their friends, even if they were just good friends or good to their mother or good to their pets. It's like the essential goodness of people tends to get forgotten when when the death is disastrous and so um yeah i wanted to wake that up and not just not just as a pretty picture not just being good to your mother but uh, but actually their sex life to celebrate the sex that they had the fun that they had the joy of sex a friend of mine who was a who was actually an hiv activist uh, and 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 
chained himself to railings back in the day, watched the show and actually described it as sex positive, which is not a phrase I'd heard before. But um, obviously, that's, I don't know if that's a phrase that is used, but I can't, I kind of like it. I'm kind of, it's only been a few I like days. sex positive. Yeah, I'm kind of getting used to that phrase. It's like, it's sex positive. And it, it, yes, it's like, yes. And it, it, do you know, in a funny way, it's not letting the virus win. It's not letting the virus say, yeah, that sex was wrong and bad and it infected you. It's the opposite. It's sort of saying, yes, the sex was great. To have sex is great and with love and with affection and with joy. That's a really good thing. It is sex positive. Yeah. It is. And I, you know, I think it's in really interesting conversation in that way with, uh, I don't know if you've seen the, the Robin Campillo film BPM beats per minute. Oh, love that. Um, Amazing. Yeah, yeah. You know, where the, I think that also shows the sex as this kind of transgressive, um, almost act of protest in a way that I think is so. Oh, that astonishing hospital scene! Yeah. Hospital scene. Yeah. Like, that is yeah. just. I mean, it's 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 funny because actually, I think it's a sin. Honestly, it is. It's a sin is reacting to all these pieces of work, and activism is so powerfully portrayed in BPM. It kind of allowed me to go light on the activism. We have one riot that actually isn't about the riot. It's about Richie's realization that he's HIV positive. Mm-hmm. Um, and it actually kind of, these things free me up to sort of say, actually, BPM does that. If you want to see the activists go over there, come over here for ordinary lives being lived. So great film, great film. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I think that this show too, it shows all these different facets and and, and yet there is this, this, you know, this kind of locus point of this apartment, this group of friends, you know, Ollie, in the show, you genuinely all do seem to be having fun together, to be grieving together, to to really be living this um, as, as a unit. Uh, is that hard to synthesize with, you know, actors you might not know and are meeting on set? Like, how, how did you guys work together? Well, Russell knows this. We all fell in love with each other as a cast instantly. Um, and yeah. we had a... Um, we did have a, a, a rehearsal week, so but we all met at the read-through, and I think... I don't know, mate. Honestly, the casting, got to give it to Andy Pryor, casting director and Russell and all the people at the top. They put together a good group. But we, um, I guess as actors, we definitely were very connected to the story. I think we all just felt very emotionally invested from the get-go. I don't know whether that was because lots of us are gay and we, it probably is. <laughs> and, um, you know, we all were aware... I, I think, and it's lucky really that we did just click straight away and um, because we really relied on each other throughout the whole shoot. And mm-hmm. it was, um, you know, a joy, just a joy to be, to work with these people. And I think, you, I don't know, I think it's just, you see it, you see how brilliant the, mm-hmm. they all are. <laughs> um, and um, I miss it. I miss that, 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 that group. Yeah. I, I know, you know, Ali, in, in your music, um, you, you were using, you know, male pronouns in a way that maybe a lot of other musicians who were gay or queer were not, you know, they're hedging, they're sort of who the song was about. Um, and now you're, you're, you're back in, in, in acting with this, this, this show. Do you feel any sort of, I don't know, mandate to, to, to do work that has a, a kind of social political context to it? Um, is that how you sort of choose your creative pursuits, I guess? Um, well, not, not really. I guess I, um, I'm, if, if I think, uh, (laughs) I just jumped at the chance to work with Russell, honestly, and reading a script like this, I've never read a script like this or seen a character like this, you know, and I think I, um, it's, it's, it's an interesting topic because you sort of kind of in, in insert I sometimes I think you kind of fit the politics onto it a bit retroactively you know um Mm -hmm. like and I've kind of 
sort of experienced that a bit throughout my career and I've, I've often questioned myself but it's always been super important to me to 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 be politically active but I've um mainly kind of just wanted to do work that I thought would be really fun and exciting and um so if that makes any sense I don't really it does yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It does. um a, a, another aspect of this show that I I really feel I haven't seen done so thoroughly before is the figure of Jill, the character of Jill, hmm. who, you know, I, in my read of it is this testament to the many um, women and, and allies who, who were there during all of this and, and, and helping and watching uh, their friends and loved ones die. Uh, Russell, was, was Jill part of the equation in your head from, from the onset? Oh, absolutely. If you watch the show at the end, she's the voice, she's the heart, yeah. she's the moral conscience of the piece. And, is a lot more interesting than the words moral conscience sound as well. It's she's based on my friend Jill. Uh, I couldn't even change her name, Richard. Mm. I couldn't, I couldn't. I sat here typing thinking Alison, Sarah. No, she's Jill. I couldn't change it. So she is Jill. I don't know if you know, but my real life friend Jill went to London, lived in a place she called the Pink Palace, became friends with those gay boys and and then sat at their bedsides when they were ill and saw a lot of them out of the world and did such brilliant work. We got her to play fictional Jill's mother. So Jill <laughs> plays Jill's mother on screen, which is a lovely circle being closed, actually. Yeah. Uh, it's a great, one of the great lovely opportunities in life to do that for your friend and, and for her to do it for us. Um, and yes, um, it, the, of course, there they are those ranks of helpers, um, uh, those women, who, you know, and the gay men in this are not angels. They, they put upon her, they use her, they uh, trap her into secrets. She takes it, she suffers, she, she rises above it, actually. I mean, you reach the final episode and I always used to sit here at this desk writing it thinking, Jill can see the world. She can see the world. She sees the world mm. clearer than anyone else. And that's how she's able to pin down the, the, the shame and the problems and, the, and, and, and not the villains, that's the wrong word, but those who could be better, those who should be acting better. And she tells them. And then you get, you cast that in was Lydia West. And I mean, Ooh, will we be watching her be a star for the rest of our lives? Yes, we will. Yes. She's shining, isn't she? She's yeah. shining and gorgeous. She's an awful woman in real life. She's terrible. She's <laughs> a whore and a fraud. But a fraud. <laughs> a fraud. <laughs> what is she God. fraud? <laughs> Give me my money back, Lydia West. Uh. <laughs> but she's, you know, you sometimes you strike lucky. It's like Ollie said, that, that bunch of people all walked in. You can't cast people to click together. You hope that they do. Right. And once in a while, a little bit of magic happens. And like you said it's visible on screen it literally is a shine and an energy on the screen thing my god these people are mates it's lovely did it make you think about any of the jills in your own life ollie or if you if you have them yeah i mean i um i i think jill i mean i feel so connected to this honestly to jill and to lydia who played jill <laughs> and um it's it's and i think just her character and the way she she really represents a lot of um really caring people that I guess I've come into contact I think in my life I kind of see a bit of that kind of reflected in her and um I'm I'm so happy with the response with people watch the show because Jill is so loved and and everybody really you know that's that's really what everybody kind of says to me is how much they love Jill and, and I I really feel like because the boys do use her a bit. And Richie, I was always annoyed at Richie for kind of taking advantage of Jill, even though she's really the, the, the love of his life. But he can't really ever quite see it. 
And um, so now I really feel like, uh, you know, like Russell's saying, it's a full circle moment, but she's really, she's just shining. And, and, and uh, that rep- she represents a lot of people, a lot of women and a lot of, you know, uh, I just think that's, it's really beautiful to see. Yeah. Um, you know, and she, and, and Lydia has this intense scene with Kili Haas uh, at the end of the series. Yeah. Um, and you had mentioned the word shame, Russell. And, and I'm curious for both of you, if, if either of you want to answer, like, where do you see shame operating in this, in this story, in this world? Because I think um, it's a tricky concept in that, like, it, you don't, you know, you're not showing that these people are living these sort of self-loathing, miserable lives. But of course, there is that stigma or whatever, you know, whatever you want to call it, kind of surrounding them at, um, in their lives. Um, so I'm just curious, like, how did, how did shame come into play uh, in the creation of the show? Oh, well, it's the spine of the whole thing. And at the end, the, the moral center uh, delivers a speech on shame. It's not even subtle. So you're not even using analogies or metaphors. It's like she literally says shame is this and it has done that. It's so on the nose because sometimes writing has to be on the nose and that's when it works because um, never listen to writing advice that says don't be on the nose. Go for the nose. Nose every time. <laughs> it's true. And um, it, it, because, I mean, it's a drama very much shaped by a virus. Literally, the, the 10 years is, is, is the need to show the slow, incremental advance of the virus, the, the many facets of the virus, the many deaths of the virus. And here, it's, it's shame is what created many deaths. If this had been coronavirus, we could have, look, the news is full of it. We're all talking about it. Presidents and prime ministers give speeches about it or fail to give speeches about it. But nonetheless, it's on the agenda and, and we're all talking about it all day long. Imagine if that would be the HIV virus. Life would have actually been so much better and more deaths would have been prevented. That is an actual fact. But because the shame is wrapped up with the physical act, I mean, people are embarrassed talking about sex at the best of times. And then when it's gay sex, when it's physical gay sex, then strange um, standards begin to be applied and not even strange, they're, they're, they're all too common. And so that creates a silence, which creates ignorance, which creates fear, which creates death. And that's the shame. And and let me say also that gay shame existed long before this virus came along and will exist long after. It's like, as long as we live in a society where to be remotely other is to be seen mm. as different and somehow wrong or lesser or just, or, yes, or just off the beaten path, then, um, you know, these talk to trans people now, talk to, to anyone gender fluid, talk to anyone having a gender identity crisis now. Shame, shame, shame. But we're so quick to pile upon. I think it's very interesting. There are some reactions to Jill. Some people react to Jill, um, the character of Jill, as though um, she's too much of a carer. She's too much of a helper. She doesn't have a life of her own. It starts to shame shame on her head. It's that shame. And the real life Jill has had this all her life. People lining up, usually straight men, but a lot of women as well, lining up to tell you how to behave. This is how you must behave. You must behave in this way. And once you start to be different, then shame occurs. So shame is that it's not, it's not an accidental conversation at the end. The fire, I mean, I set out to write five hours of drama that actually all spearhead an arrow towards that conclusion, which is shame is to blame for the deaths and shame on the people inflicting that. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's really palpably felt uh, and uh, you know, it's bracing, but, but also cathartic in a way. Um, I hope so. And and I'm curious, Ali, you know, just uh, before we go, um, did you, did this, this show help unpack anything for you in your own kind of, self-identity or, or or did you learn anything about your own i guess gay life in the world sure oh my gosh so many things i um 
one of the things, you know, just hearing Russell talk about shame, you know, I, and you see in the show, all the characters are affected by shame, you know, it doesn't matter if they're gay or straight, it, it affects everybody. And just me personally, I know how my own shame has impacted a lot of my own life in, and I had very poor mental health in my teenage years and my early 20s. And I was really, you know, I had a lot of self-destructive behaviors. And, um, you know, and I'm not chalking all of that down to being gay. Of course not. But I'm see- But the more I kind of, well, the more years I have, but also the chance I've gone to do something like this and to really engage with, you know, what it means to be gay and how it makes me feel now and what it would have been like in the 1980s. And to go into all of that in such a way was like a real, really a gift. Oh, my gosh. It was just... You know, so it's been like this this jigsaw puzzle kind of fitting pieces together. And so I am um, I'm just thankful for the experience, really. And I'm continuing to learn more about myself and, you know, every day. It never stops, Ollie. It never stops. <laughs> exactly. It's, <laughs> a long, it's a long road you're on and there's a deathbed at the end of it. Um, <laughs> on that cheery on. note. Uh, <laughs> you started uh, with I the want... word dense, love. You started. Uh, I meant in, like a good novel, like a big dense yeah, novel. It was rich um, with rich with things yeah yeah yeah. yes yes exactly that's a that's a better way um well i really want to thank you both not only for talking to us today but also for the show it's and it's going to have a great long life where people discover it of all ages i hope and um thank you for making it i guess pretty simply really appreciate that thank you very much yeah yeah all right you too thanks again take care thank you thank you so much and if you are watching this video Either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There is five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts. Was there anything that that they said, uh, Richard, that you wanted to sort of comment on directly? Any answer you were sort of surprised by, or? Well, I, I, you know, I'm I'm not always the most intrepid interviewer, and I really wanted to just let Russell and Ollie talk about their work because I think it's so worth talking about and worth hearing about and and worth watching. Um, but I did bring up the sort of shame, sort of summation at the end, which is you know, um, there's a big monologue. Uh, okay, wait. So, so really quick, we're yeah. now we're going to talk about the ending yeah, of this sorry. series. If you haven't seen it, uh, you know, go watch it. Yeah. Um, hopefully, you went and watched it before you listened to Russell and Ollie talk about it. But uh, I want to hear what you yeah. what you think about it, Richard. Yeah, I mean, so anyway, I brought it up and I didn't really push back against it, and, you know, because I wanted to hear what he had to say, what his sort of reasoning was for at the end of this series. Um, you know, kind of right after we've seen Richie. Uh, on his deathbed, talk about what what fun they had, you know. Um, 
why why he chose to kind of then turn it back around to this kind of shame thing that that shame imposed by um family and community and society at large was directly responsible for the spread of AIDS for AIDS death you know um and i think in some senses for like anonymous sex and things like that and, I, and so i don't really know how far i want to follow that por- portion of the show into its like reasoning about about w- what was kind of animating these characters because i don't know i i, I don't know what you, i want to hear what you think but like watching the bulk of it's a sin i don't really see that shame i mean it's obviously there i mean i'm not going to deny that i mean that's still a huge topic of conversation for queer people now uh is self-loathing i think gay men uh you know have a a one varietal of that which is tied to patriarchy and misogyny and 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 fear of effeminacy and femininity and you know all that stuff and and um, so I'm not denying it, but I, I just I, I think to kind of have that be one of the last big notes of this show yeah. doesn't quite feel right to me. I think if we had had that some version of that and then ended instead with Richie's like, you know, it was fun sort of deathbed yeah. speech instead, if we had flip flop them almost. So he's he's contradicting this thing, which it might not be 100 percent. You know, he. Uh, here's what I'll say. What I see in the character of Richie Tozier, and by the way, you didn't ask them why he was named Richie Tozier, did you? No. <laughs> okay. Um, I noted to Richard while we were watching that um, that's a character uh, in the in the film and book it. So I was, I was a little, um, but you know, it starts, Richie comes uh, to the city, not having had sex, tries to have sex with, uh, or does have sex with Ash. And then it's like really traumatically embarrassing for him. Cause it's not very good. Cause who's is the first time. And then what follows almost seems to be, does seem to be connected to that specific shame. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah the shame of, of of the first time and then like oh what a perfect fantasy reality that like ash winds up like falling in love with and being devoted to richie like mm-hmm. of you know um w- wouldn't we all want that to happen but um the uh so that she which doesn't i didn't mentally connect to the shame of you know things he was holding from his family from his mother played by uh the great keely hawes um I didn't connect those shames, but I suppose like lack of, I think there's a broader commentary that you could make about, um, lack of sex education, any sort of shame attacked, attached to sex, but specifically, you know, gay sex, if it's not, if it's talked about even less than, than cis or straight, you know, straight sex, um, shame, shame related to like ignorance. I can Mm -hmm. kind of see that sort of coming through, but not necessarily exactly what Jill's talking about at the end there, you know? Yeah. And, and I, I don't want to like push back against Russell's reasoning in, in that, like, this is a personal piece for him. And, and I, and I have no doubt that he is writing from experience, if not maybe his own or maybe other people he knew or still knows who, who really did feel like a lot of the kind of clandestine, uh promiscuous maybe a little bit reckless self-destructive behavior was born out of shame i'm not saying it's not but i i think that um there's so much more too you know and Mm -hmm. and i think 
what I guess what I what I really wanted was I mean, okay, I'm gonna back up because I, I think that it, I think that it is interesting how that's it's this is sort of mirrored recently with um people getting upset at gay men for going to Puerto Vallarta during quarantine and and having a, you know sex parties in New York City during quarantine and kind of carrying on and there there was this weird echo of of a lot of rhetoric from back then. Um mm-hmm. as I wasn't conscious really back then, but from what I've read and what I kind mm-hmm. of understood. Um and 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 the topic of shame came back up and I saw some, you know, long Instagram captions and <laughs> maybe an essay or two about um about self-loathing and all that kind of stuff and, and where that self-loathing is coming from and how it manifests. And, and it, it just was sort of accepted. It's this kind of like shibboleth of like, of gay life sometimes that like, this is our, not our original sin, but our original sort of albatross, like this, this thing. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think that is true for a lot of people. I grew up very, you know, on the, on the much more accepting side with family and community. And I, lived in the north been big cities in the northeast of the united states like i was very lucky um i just i think i I just wanted a little bit more complexity i guess at the end of this series so that wasn't the only sentiment that sort of echoed in my ears when the show ended um and i've since gone back and revisited certain episodes and scenes and 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 uh, there is more of a fullness there but Mm. um I don't know. It's just it's interesting that this show is having this dialogue about that time in this time when that dialogue is happening in this time separate of the show also and in about a different <laughs> yeah. thing. You know, this is this ongoing thing. So I guess now I've talked myself into thinking like, well, it makes total sense that it's in there. <laughs> <laughs> I want to uh, circle back to the two little paragraphs that I cut out of Robert's uh, Rob's email. Yes. Yeah. That had to do with the ending here because uh, I think it's it's directly related. Right. So so Rob writes. For me, the highlight of the show were the scenes in the hospital in the final episode in which Richie had to tell his parents he had AIDS. The conversation was so redolent of my own experience of telling my parents slash family I was positive, although my family, after initially being frightened slash distraught, have handled it amazingly. The feeling of shame of admitting to your parents that you've contracted a sexually transmitted disease and the mental images that suggest in their heads is quite a defining moment in my life. Um, and then to a little later down the email, Rob writes, I found it deeply frustrating that the final note was the despair of Richie's death. The show did nothing to destigmatize the virus for the viewers who are not well informed about it. I wish there had been a final flash forward scene of Jill as an HIV nurse telling a newly diagnosed HIV positive person that is now a treatable disease and you can live a long, healthy life, posing little slash no risk to others when on medication. Um, so I think it's not sort of exactly what you're saying, but a, but a, a wish for uh, even as this show balances joy and despair and not, and as you said, not making them either or, but making them uh, sort of blended throughout the whole thing. The fact that it ends more on the despair than it does the joy. um, Even though there is this sort of like celebratory, you know, wake uh, esque, you know, found family celebration of, of Richie, like uh, there could be even more uplift right at the end there. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad we got that email and I I would also point people to um, a sub stack written by a man named Brian Mullen, M U L L I N who is from London 
uh, and uh, works in theater and wrote something called How'd You Get It? slash Such a Shame. And it's a long piece about these exact topics in It's a Sin that is worth oh, seeking great. out and reading. It's very critical of the show. Yeah. Um, but it's really, you know, illuminating in, in a lot of ways. He's also, I believe, positive. And, um, you know, I think... Uh, there was a there was a discourse if which is a generous term for it on on twitter a couple of weeks ago or last week i don't remember anymore but um where uh, some younger twitter person was talking about not knowing older gay people and then someone said well that's because an entire generation was wiped out and then other mm. people said what are you talking about and i think i think there is among some young queer people this dr dramatic notion that like literally there is no gay person between the ages of 40 and 70 right you know which is not at all true many right. many 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 people died uh, from aids but many also survived either uh uninfected or, or or with positive status and and have been you know on on really like increasingly effective medication um for many decades now um, and, and that's a really important thing to, to know. And, and, and like Rob says to destigmatize, de um, and yeah, I, I can see that certainly a different ending of this show that, um, doesn't kind of not to be crass about it, but kind of push this generation off on the ice flow and mm -hmm. figure it all lost. Cause it's not lost because Russell T Davies wrote it and he's alive <laughs> and Stephen Fry is in it, you know, like it's still, you know, there's evidence the, of survival everywhere. That was the odd math that I was doing, um, or the morbid math, I suppose, when like, you know, Russell T. Davies, I know to be, he's Welsh. And so I was like, oh, maybe like, you know, Colin is his sort of fictional analog. And, and so Colin will certainly survive. And then very early doors did not. And then I was like, oh, well, then I suppose he's the Richie. And then Richie didn't survive. And I was like, okay, then, you know, perhaps he's sort of in everyone and didn't, and yeah. didn't do the thing where you inject yourself so completely into the narrative but um yeah you know when we talk about it was fran lebowitz who was talking about sort of <laughs> the generation of of you know people we lost to aids and as you say it was not a complete generation but making that idea that like because we lost so many artists um that we lost the ability to be critical is that not her point Something well she like was talking that? about artists but also art lovers the people yeah. who would go to the symphony and go to the ballet and go to the theater yeah. um and she's like the reason you see all these like old you know straight couples is because all the other people went away you know they died mm -hmm. um which like mm -hmm. she's being dramatic i have my issues with friendly boots, yeah. but yeah. uh i did not like it's pretend it's a city one bit um but um uh yeah, I mean, I, but that's the thing is that sentiment. I've I've used it before because it 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 carries this dramatic weight. It's this kind of, um, I don't know, like synecdoche for like a broader like gay tragedy. I guess to say like yeah. this generation was wiped out, and and it was certainly really, 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 really harmed and 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 done a, dealt a severe blow, um, but. Uh, not not everyone you know like yeah i think part of I, I don't know if this is true but i wonder if part of it has to do with um trying to make the lost felt by 
people outside the gay community. I'm thinking specifically of um, not that not that it should be hard, but sometimes it can be hard to get people to care about things that doesn't that they think don't directly affect them or theirs. Um, and and there's a lot of miseducation about that around the HIV uh, HIV AIDS um, epidemic, but. Um, I'm thinking of the documentary Howard, which I really loved about Howard Ashman um, that uh, came out, I think it was like two years ago that it was at the festivals and then on Disney plus just this last year. Um, and the idea of, of a figure like Howard Ashman, who is so integral to so many childhoods and saying sort of towards the end of that documentary saying, think of all the Howard Ashman Disney musicals or stage musicals for that matter that you could have had if this disease had not taken him so young. Um, and, and, and it's, I don't know if it's, um, you know, monstrous to try to make people empathize that way, but it is one way to say like, this does directly affect you and the things you love. The things you love were created by people who were taken by this, you know? Um, that's something I was, I've been thinking about as it relates to, to Howard specifically. Yeah. Uh, Howard Ashman is, is I feel like, um, a really, uh, potent example of that. Um, studying theater in college and, and doing, you know, tangential theater stuff in New York when I first moved here. Um, another name I heard was Michael Bennett who, uh, directed yeah. the original production of a chorus line and it was just a revolution of staging and, you know, and he died, um, of AIDS complications. Um, many years ago um yeah and and i I don't mean to be to harp on the show for showing death of course not you know it's just like i I think that maybe it's the time we're in right now but i just craving that little bit of like light at the end of this experience you know yeah um but i also you know on 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 the on the plus side i mean there's so much about this series that i think is really not only engaging and, and I dare say entertaining, I know that's a weird word to use about this show, but it is, um, you know, I think, I think it's really, I mean, the fact that it's been so huge on UK on like a big network there and there's like so much sex and, and, and it's so frank and it's not, you know, I, I think about, um, the movie Stonewall, the Roland Emmerich, uh, mm. horror, horrible <laughs> thing that is Stonewall. Um, yeah, yeah, and I yeah. like Roland Emmerich's movies. I like, I even like Anonymous, the Shakespeare authorship movie. <laughs> um, but that movie is just so steeped in horrible tropes. One of them being that the hero of the tale is this strapping farm boy sort of jock who has this kind of shamey sex experience in his hometown and then comes to New York and is sort of the worship object of everyone around him and throws the first fucking brick and, you know, and yells gay power. Like it's that my movie is absurd for so many reasons, but it's my favorite Richard Lawson's scathing takedown is your Stonewall review. Honestly. (laughs) Well, (laughs) that was a funny experience because at the press screening, uh, it was like a Friday late morning, it was packed because it was the only screening they had in New York. It was screening in Toronto at the same time uh, during, at the tail end of the festival. Um, Mm -hmm. and I was already back in New York and, um, you know, for the first 20 minutes, everyone's trying to be professional journalist, critic type. And then maybe 35 minutes in some one person laughed and then no one could contain themselves. And there was just (laughs) laughter throughout the rest of the movie. Um, Uh it was kind of a joyous experience, communal experience, but 
anyway, that's to say that I think that this is a sin, um, or it's a sin rather, uh, avoids a lot of those, uh, kind of creaky tropes and, and problematic tropes. There are, you know, there, there are issues with this show, but like, you know, I think that the way that Richie is framed as, yeah, like a, a sexually desirable person, um, he has many lovers, but there isn't this kind of like worship, you know, he is, and he's a selfish person. He votes Tory. Like he's, he's a really complicated character. Um, and I think that is its own kind of honoring of, of complexity. I, I think that too often in, in narratives about disease and dying doesn't have to be about AIDS. The afflicted person takes on this kind of saintly glow, you know, and, and they are this precious thing being, you know, sort of gently pulled out of the, out of the world. And, 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 and that can be true. But also a lot of people who die of AIDS or other things were complicated, difficult people. And, and I really appreciate the way that Davies does that. And I appreciate the way that he sets Richie in conversation with Colin and with their other friends. And, and it, I believe that they're friends despite their differences. And I think seeing that kind of, you know, gay and gay adjacent or ally camaraderie in a big glossy TV miniseries uh, is pretty, it, it feels striking, you know, it, 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 we've, there's maybe been something like it before uh, you could argue looking or queer folk certainly, but this has a, a sort of richer timber to it, I think. Yeah. I, I, uh, you know, to, to go back to what you were saying about like the, the, the show being surprisingly entertaining, you know, there's, there's sex montages and there's also sort of like Richie doing direct address to the camera, walk and talks, you know, just giving out complete denials about the realities of the AIDS crisis. And it's, you know, it's funny in that sort of big short way in that it's also, you know, it's disturbing and funny and entertaining at the same time. And you, from my experience watching it, I was like, Oh my God, am I allowed to be having this much of a good time? Uh, while watching the story where people are getting sick and dying. Um, is that allowed? And, and just once again, I just, I don't know how to properly praise this for a truly massive balance of tone, uh, in that way that makes it okay to, you know, enjoy the outrageousness that is, you know, Richie's, um, sexual exploits and then like come crashing down to earth with, with, other things i'm curious can i can i go back to that substack you mentioned i'm sorry that i i have not yeah. had a chance to read it yet but you know is the point like um you can get it like colin did and it's like a tragedy and you're a martyr because you just had you know this one ex experience and it's so sad and he was so virginal and and meek or you can get it like richie did and like on on, on in some sense we're supposed to think that he deserved it because he was courting this kind of disaster. Like, is that a, a binary is trying to, what is, what is it? What is they trying to say? I guess well, I it's a long piece and it's, it's, it's complicated. And, and I, I think that one of the, the, th I think that the, what, what this writer, um, Brian Mullen uh, had took issue with, with, with the Colin storyline was this wondering about how he, how he got it. And then showing us that as a kind of reveal. 
Um, mm. and, and I think that what that kind of, um, I don't know how to call it kind of pathology in a way like this is, it's not contact tracing, you know, it, it, it doesn't, we don't really need to know where, how he got it or who he got it from, um, in, in, in the context of this story and the show, um, and, 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 and being so reliant narratively, dramatically on that kind of reveal sort of helps bolster in some senses, uh, the the problem surrounding an HIV diagnosis of consequence and mm-hmm. uh, of, of this is something you get because of poor behavior. And I, and I, and what I, what I think Davies is trying to show with Colin's storyline is that like, this was not just people, you know, having orgies or hook up every night or whatever this the, the, it 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 could just take one time or you know what right. one person right, right. and i appreciate that 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 be in there that that's in there but i think the sort of showing of it uh that's interesting betrays a prurience or something or a shaming could go back to that word yeah as a like but it's so interesting. I mean, As a smoking on the one gun hand, kind of thing, you know. Yeah, yeah, like a mystery to be solved. Um, and I, I like, I'll admit, I got suckered in where I'm like, when did it? Where did it? When did? Yeah, how how did it happen? Well, of course, um, I, I was too. Yeah, yeah, but I guess you know, I I really want to read the piece, so I'm not trying to like rebut a piece that I didn't read. But um, I guess I would I would think that that encounter um connects more directly to that idea of shame that we were talking about, right? Because it happens when Colin's living with this family, the, the young man that he has sex with is so infected with shame. It's, it's, it's manifests as like a rage, right? Yeah. Um, because of, of the, of the household that he's living in, I would say like that mother <laughs> is more directly connected to, um, uh, like a, a shame infected sex, uh, you know, experience than, than the Keely Haas character. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. I, you know, I do appreciate the, the fact that, you know, as I was watching it and I had that assumption that Colin being so virginal was safe, that that was sort of, that rug was yanked out from underneath and, and like, and I was forced to confront my idea of like who, who is safe and who is not and how stupid of a concept that is in something like this, you know? So, um, yeah. And I, and I think that, you know, like, um, I'm, I'm glad that we can have the kind of conversation about this. That's positive and negative and complicated and, 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 and uncertain, you know, we don't know have all the answers. And, and I think, I think that when you have a, a piece like this, that is addressing an, a, 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 a underrepresented, community you know vague community nebulous community of people um it's always going to kind of be a little bit more intensely under the microscope uh kind of an auditing for like well they got that wrong and 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 i i can get frustrated with that i think some of that is kind of what killed that show looking which i know had its problems but i think probably would have benefited for a sort of more open dialogue rather than a sort of just like dismissal, I guess. And I'm seeing a little of the dismissal about this just kind of in my little Twitter circles or whatever. And that's fair. That's fine. I mean, this is such a charged topic that like, I wouldn't begrudge anyone from just wanting to walk away from it because it, it seems off in some way. Um, but 
you know, I would hope that whoever's listened to this, who has watched it, at least gained something of value or, or maybe not even a value, but like, but like thought something, you know, whether it was negative or positive. Like, I, I think that, uh, what it's a sins kind of core strength is that it exists, I guess, like, um, right. which sounds dramatic, but, um, yeah. Well, it might also, it might feel like, well, something I think about a lot when it comes to, you know, watching it's it's funny you know you and i have been doing this podcast this other podcast little gold men and we've been sort of co-workers for long enough that <clears throat> you know i start to view a lot of like uh, gay art gay stories like through your lens because you know it's it's my most immediate um sort of conversation that i usually have around these things and you you helped me open my like you helped open my eyes about this idea of like can we have something other than a coming out narrative? We've had plenty of that. I'd like something. And yeah. and then what? Like, can we have something else? You know, yeah. something like that. And so do you think that there are ways in which it's a sin feels a little, even though there, you know, it's not as much a coming out narrative as, as um, it might otherwise be, but like, does it, do you think it feels regressive to some people? Like, like beginners uh, in a, in a way that like, um, and maybe that just has to do with the fact that this story hasn't existed for the UK audience, but Americans are like, we've, we've already, we already know this. I don't know. Yeah. What do you think? I mean, I think that's such a matter of perspective and, and that sure. perspective is gained from, you know, a variety of things, you know, uh, lived experience, age, whatever. Um, and yeah, I think there is a, an air of been there, seen that, done that, whatever, you know, we get it, you know. But like we said earlier, you know, this was 40 years ago and, yeah. uh, and, and, and a lot of people don't ha aren't steeped in that kind of education. So it, so it, it has that benefit to it. Um, I've seen other people critical of the show say that it's kind of like aimed at a straight audience. Mm. Yeah. I was going to ask that. Which as like, well. Okay. Like I, I, yeah. I, that doesn't bother me because it, it, what it's doing is, uh, is, and that it's a hit. It's like, well, they sh pe straight audiences in the, you know, middle of the UK yeah. or whatever should see this, you know, and, 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 and that is its own kind of destigmatization, you know, granted there are issues with some of the show's portrayals and, and who they omit. Um, so it's not a perfect thing. It's not a perfect messenger, but it is something. And, um, I, I share the frustration of many queer people that like there isn't enough stuff that like it, it isn't sort of uh, that is about us roughly, but but it isn't really aimed at us or marketed to us or sold to us or one little representational triumph. We're supposed to be like clapping for Disney for their exclusively gay moment and beating the beast or whatever. <laughs> like, yes, of course, that yeah. is a frustration. I wish yeah. we had more movies. Uh, and shows, um, you know, that were really kind of niche and like intra, you know, dialogue about queer experience. Yeah. But like that doesn't wanting more of that doesn't mean we necessarily need less of something like it's a sin. Yeah, it's interesting because I think, you know, Queer as Folk was introduced to me via when I first moved to the city um, out of college, my straight 
female roommate was the one who like gave me her queer as folk DVDs or whatever. And I watched it and like, um, you know, hopefully not in like a classic straight woman fetishistic gay sort of way, but just sort of like, it was just a really fun show to watch. And, um, I rem- I think I remember this, please correct me if I'm wrong. Looking on HBO was happening and ended sort of just when you and I were starting at Vanity Fair. I think it was like the first couple of years that we were there. And yeah. I remember you writing a piece when it ended or at least, or maybe it was just a tweet, but it was just sort of about like, here was a thing that felt a little less queer as folk, a little bit more like for us, by us, like for exactly us. Yeah. And it was rejected by the audience that it was meant for. Is that an accurate memory? Richard? Yeah, no, I did write something to that effect. Um, I actually ended up, <laughs> the funny thing is I was not even like that passionate about that show, but I ended up writing a couple defenses of it. One when it first premiered and then one when it ended. Um, and a funny story about when it first premiered, uh, I wrote a piece defending the show, um, disagreeing with someone at Slate, I believe who had written, a long piece about how it was so prosaic and tame and, you know, didn't get the, you know, took all the queer out of queerness and all, you know, and I, I see their points and and I I know, but like it was an HBO primetime show. Like, I I don't know what, you know, uh, I think the sex in it's a sin is evidence that like there has been progress on that front, you know? Um, But anyway, so I wrote this piece in 2014. So yeah, it was like brand new to, to VF early 2014 and got asked to be on a call in show on NPR for it for an hour. Mm-hmm. And the show is based in Boston, but I, I was at the NPR studios in, in midtown Manhattan mm-hmm. uh, for an hour with just me and Jonathan Groff. Mm-hmm. Richard. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. VF. And you survived. Um, and I, you lived to tell the I tale. Did. My it, goodness. It, well, I, I'll tell you a funny story about that. Um, no, I don't think I should put it on. <laughs> I'll tell, I'll tell a Jonathan Groff story that maybe I shouldn't. When I interviewed him for Frozen 2, he complimented my shoes when he did not have to. He just like said nice things on my shoes. And I definitely clipped, you know, that was part of my like longer audio of my interview with him. I clipped that one section and sent it to my aunt who was obsessed with Jonathan Groff. And I was like, Jonathan Groff said something nice about my shoes. And I just wanted you to know that that happened. Well, so, good. Um, I'm- <laughs> I guess we're off topic now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Jonathan Groff um, and compliments, there are definitely but, people you know. listening just like rolling their eyes about Jonathan Groff. And I get it. I know. Like it, <laughs> I get it. Um, but anyway, that's a long way of saying that like, I don't think that it's a sin is perfect. I don't think that it um, is a, 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 a completely holistic representation of anything. I think that for what it is though, and what it's trying to impart upon its, uh, its audience, um, be that older gay men or, and, and other people who are, you know, as a kind of memory piece for them, mm-hmm. uh, some sort of catharsis. I think it, it serves its purpose well in that regard. I think it hopefully serves its purpose well as a bit of advocacy, advocacy for, uh, audiences who wouldn't normally watch something like this. And mm-hmm. maybe the, it's not melodrama because it really did happen to people, but like the drama, the weepiness, the tearjerker stuff, like that is often a way in for people. It's a, it's a route toward compassion. And I guess you could argue that people who aren't compassionate towards queer people wouldn't be watching it to begin with. I don't know that that's true. Maybe it's true for most people, but it might not be for everyone. 
And and in that way, I think it's worthy. And I, that might sound square or Pollyanna or not very 2021 of me, but like I do believe that when the product isn't Stonewall the movie, this is far from that. Um, despite its you know some of its issues, um, I, I think that 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 is uh, absolute um, kind of that's value right there. Well, that, that is a great submission as any of the, the value, the joys, the, you know, and as we mentioned, the flaws of it's a sin. I love talking about television with you, Richard. Um, and I love that, um, you know, this space exists for us to be both, both praising and criticizing something. I think that's, you know, that's the sign of something that's interesting. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, Thank you. I think, you know, I think it was your idea to do this one-off episode. I'm really glad that we did it. And, um, is there, I mean, I guess I'm, I'm putting you on the spot here, but before we go, is there, is there any other, like if people watch It's a Sin and they really loved it, you know, what would be the next thing that you would suggest for them to seek out to watch? Well, to watch, I would say BPM for sure. Um, there's a lot of, you know, similarities and, and as people who've already listened to the interview with Russell and Ollie, like I, I brought that movie up and Russell, was very high on that movie. So those are definitely in conversation with each other. Um, but if people want more specifically the London experience of this time, there is a mini series based on this, but I don't recommend watching that. But the novel by Alan Hollinghurst called the line of beauty, um, is a really extraordinary novel about a young man. He could be friends with these kids, you know, um, a young man in London who gets kind of taken under the wing of this wealthy family during the height of Thatcher or the beginnings of Thatcherism and AIDS in, in London. Um, and it's this kind of beautiful epic, uh, about his experience over those years. Um, really worth reading. If you like it, read more Alan Hollinghurst. He's incredible. Um, yeah, there's a lot out there. I, I wish that there was more from diverse voices. I mean, th- that stuff is there. It's just maybe harder to find or not as readily, um, doesn't you know, spring to mind as readily, but, um, yeah, those two things I would recommend a line of beauty and BPM. Excellent. All right. Um, until, uh, we return, I suppose with, with more, uh, comic book show, which we are hoping, <laughs> My, you know, might be the gayest thing Marvel does yet. I don't know. We have high hopes. There's only a couple of episodes yeah. left, but maybe. Uh, Richard, where can folks find you? Well, uh, I have a review of It's a Sin up on VF.com, along with some other reviews. Well, I have reviews every week. Um, uh, tweeting at Rylaws. Um, I'm at Joe wrote this. I'm also on VF.com. You can find a conversation that I had with Lydia West, who plays uh, Jill up there. Um, and we will see you back for WandaVision. And then also, we don't know what we're doing next. We haven't decided. Um, so if you have any suggestions of stuff that's on the horizon, I mean, Kate Winslet's doing an outrageous accent in an HBO show, and that's kind of exciting, but it's not till April. So if you guys have any thoughts or feelings about what we should watch next, you can email us stillwatchingpod at gmail.com, and we will see you next time. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Review's Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. 
Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com.